Good morning, my friends. Boy, it's been a big week in the Griffin household. On Friday, we brought our daughter, to co- our oldest daughter, to college. And so this is our first experience of that sending your kid to college thing. Some of you have already done that. Some of you are going to do that later this week. Uh, people react, diff- parents react different to that moment. I was so excited for my daughter to have that college experience. My wife, when we got home, she just bawled and bawled and bawled and was mad at me that I was not bawling. And so maybe a little warning to the husbands here. You may want to cry, fake it. It was a bit of a sense that Jen and I had crossed a finish line of sorts in our parenting of this daughter. I know that there's still parenting in her life to come. I'm not naive about that. But you got to admit, there was a sense of her leaving the nest, you know, of us doing what we can and her going off. And what kind of clouded that whole departure there was the fact that this world we're sending her off into seems so messed up these days. You've been watching the news like I have, and I saw a woman in Barcelona, Spain, who witnessed the, uh, the ISIS driver take his van and drive it into a crowd of people as fast as he could to kill as many as he could, killing 13. And this woman who watched it just was racked with terror, wondering, what is our world coming to? And I think we can all relate. And we don't have to go as far as Spain, just Charlottesville last weekend. Here we've got in our country, KKK guys marching with their torches and screaming of their hatred of Jews and white supremacists and their hatred of people because their skin color is different than theirs. And, you know, two of my kids are biracial and I'm time scared about what they're going to experience out in this world filled with hate for the most ridiculous reasons. And, uh, well, it's just troubling. And I even imagine there are a lot of people this week that are feeling a lot of fear, knowing that they're a minority or for some reason different than others and people hating them for it. Maybe people in our church who are feeling that way. I feel the need to pray for them, for all of us, for our country, for our world. So I'd like to put a voice to a prayer, but please join me, would you? Let's make this a cry to God. And and, I'll warn you, in my prayer, maybe you don't want to pray. I hope you do. But in my prayer, I'm going to say, use us. Because we're part of the solution, you know. Praying for love to conquer hate, but also being available as agents of love. You know, we Christians understand that every human being, everyone, doesn't matter what religion or color of skin, you are created in the image of God. Jesus Christ died for you, and you are precious. We know that. And so it's so important that we look for ways to express that, to break those barriers of race and reach out in friendship and love and show that the people of Jesus are different. And so let's pray to be used by God as well. Sound good? Let's pray. Lord, would you hear our cry? This world is so messed up, God. We see it this week maybe with greater clarity than we have in a while. And Lord, you've got to save the day. As our series is entitled, these are strange days. And it's a strange planet. And God, the hate is everywhere sometimes it seems. Please, God, 
The kingdom of darkness is here and it's real, but your kingdom of love and light, God, may it, may it outshine the darkness, please. And use us towards that end. God, we each make ourselves available. Even this week, is there some way we can reach over a racial divide and befriend and love someone different from ourselves? Please, God. And Lord, I do think of all the people that are in fear in Spain right now, Charlottesville, Boston, Chicago. Dear God, bring the peace that surpasses all understanding. Help those who fear to know that they are loved by you with such powerful awareness. God, we pray that your love would chase away the fear. Dear God, hear our cry. You're our only hope. We look to you in this hour of need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for praying with me. I have, before, I want to get to my sermon, but I have one more thing I got to tell you about before I do. And that's Strange Day's next one. We have got an annual congregational meeting coming up on September the 10th, 4 o'clock, here at the Hobson campus. We do this once a year where we get together and we, we review what the last year was like for our church. And we talk about the future year and all that God has planned. And there's a chance for members to vote on the budget and elders. I would clarify that non-members are invited to be at this meeting as well. So everybody, please come. Maybe you were there last year and you remember it lasting two hours. Yeah, that's not a nightmare. That really happened. And we're not going to do that again. <laughs> we realize that a two-hour meeting is way too long. And so we've uh, really worked hard to plan it well. Uh, it's going to be a celebration, first of all, with worship. You know, we're celebrating. You may not be aware of this. We're celebrating our 60-year anniversary as a church. And so we're going to look back and reminisce about God's great faithfulness in our church's journey. And we're going we're gonna to just celebrate. We're going to be inspired. Um, there'll be some uh, Q&A, but one of the ways we're going to keep its length under uh, reasonable lengths, is having a bunch of separate Q&A meetings. You'll notice in your navigator or in our website that there are a bunch of Q&A meetings at all of our campuses. So if you've got issues you'd like to discuss, please come to one of those Q&A meetings so that we can make this meeting uh, more streamlined, more inspirational, and more uh, just delightful for all who are there. So we'll see you at that celebration. All right. With that said, I am uh, wanting to transition into this message by reminding you of our Awana clubs. You know, we've got what some have called a Christian version of the Boy Scouts, a club called Awana. And one of the things they do to achieve greater levels in this club is memorize verses, Bible verses. In fact, the highest level in Awana, and I've awarded this trophy to kids right on this very stage, uh, the highest level, do you know those kids have memorized 836 Bible verses? Is that incredible? Kids! I mean, that's more verses than some of you adults have memorized. Right? In fact, let's check. If those kids who have memorized 836 verses have memorized more than you have, raise your hand. Oh, that's pathetic. I mean, this church... 
You need help. And so what I'm going to do is provide you a challenge to memorize. You say, I've never memorized a Bible verse. Well, you're about to. We're going to challenge you to memorize the verse of today's sermon. Are you ready? It's found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verse 32. And here's what it is. It is all of three words. Luke 17, 32, remember Lot's wife. Jesus speaking, and that's it. That's the whole verse. One of the shortest in the Bible. Even you could memorize that. In fact, maybe you already have. Let's check and see. So we're going to close our eyes and then try to memorize remember Lot's wife. All right, ready? Everybody close your eyes. Don't peek. Remember Lot's wife. (laughs) I do need to give you more credit than I do. That's awesome. So why did Jesus call us to remember Lot's wife? Why did Jesus direct us back to the passage of Scripture that we're studying in this series? You'll recall this whole series is a study of Genesis chapters 13 through 19. It's a study of two men, Abraham and his nephew Lot. And it's a study of two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. Why does Jesus say, go back, remember Lot, more specifically, remember his wife, What did she do, and why is it so important that Christ would call our attention to it? Well, I I say we find out. And to do so, we got to go back to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And I want to read to you out of verse or chapter 19. Let me run into the context. Last week, uh, two angels had come to the home of Lot and his wife and their daughters. They were living in the city of Sodom, and these angels had said, Guys, God is about to wipe out this city. Get out of here fast. God's going to kill everybody. Maybe I should remind you that it is God's prerogative to number our days. God can end people's lives. That's his job as God. When a human being tries to do God's job and kill somebody and take their lives, that is evil at the highest level. God is God. And he can do when he looks at Sodom and he says, oh man, this, this city is in deserving punishment and it is strategically just wreaking havoc and its neighbors through its terrible influence. God strategically said, they're done. Let's take them out. Well, uh, that was the context. The angel said, you got to flee, people flee. In fact, look at verse 17. One of the angels said to, to Lot and his family, flee for your lives. In fact, don't look back. That command is very important, as we're soon to see. Verse 24, Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus God overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. All right. Well, what's going on here, this burning sulfur raining down? Well, here's a theory. Uh, The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were on the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea lie in a valley that's actually a fault line in the Earth's crust, one of the major faults on planet Earth. And those faults are uh, vulnerable to earthquakes and volcanic activity. And so one of the theories is that what God did was he used a volcanic eruption to rain down molten substance to destroy this city. That could be. What about this reference to all the vegetation died? Why is it saying that? Well, it's interesting. If you go to the Dead Sea region today, you discover it's called the Dead Sea because everything's dead. 
There's nothing alive. I mean, this huge sea has no fish in it at all. The shoreline, there's no vegetation. It's just a wasteland. It's exactly today, as the Bible back then said, it became. The next verse is quite troubling. It's the heart of the matter. Verse 26 says, but Lot's wife looked back. The very thing she was told not to do. Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Pillar of salt. Now, if you go to the Dead Sea region today, you'll see that all of the rocks are just covered with a crust of salt. It's a very saline, salty environment. And so one of the the theories is that this explosion killed Lot's wife, but not only killed her, she was coated, as everything in that valley is, with a layer of salt, and she became, in fact, a pillar of salt from that coating. It could be exactly what's going on here, but either way, it's, it's a troubling verse. And so, in fact, you may say, what's up with God? I mean, she turns her head, and he says, that's enough, boom, you're done? Doesn't it seem like an overreaction? Like the punishment is just not in balance with the crime? I feel that way. She just turned her head. Or is there more to the story? How do we understand really what's going on here? Remember, Jesus told us to look at it. Well, to understand, this thought occurred to me, maybe we need to go to the explanation of Jesus Christ. Maybe back in Luke where Jesus said, remember Lot's wife, maybe there was more there that explains Christ who really understands this occurrence. Maybe Jesus can provide commentary on Genesis. And sure enough, that's exactly what we're going to do. Let's go back to the verse you so aptly memorized already. I'm going to reread it, and then I'm going to read the next verse as well, verse 33. Ready? Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life will preserve it. That's so interesting. Jesus says, all right, remember Lot's wife because, and he goes into one of the most prevalent teachings of all of his teachings. In fact, it is the most prevalent. Did you know that? This simple teaching, which I would summarize in this way, if you try to keep your life, you'll lose it. If you give up your life, you'll find it. That teaching is the most prevalent teaching of Jesus in the Gospels. It's in all four Gospels. It's the only teaching of Jesus in all four Gospels. It occurs six times. Twice in Matthew, once in Mark, twice in Luke, once in John. And not only does it occur so much, sometimes, sometimes things occur in all four Gospels, but when you look, you realize it's four references to the same event. But when we look closely at this teaching, we discover there are at least four different occurrences, uh, four different times in history when Jesus taught the people this same principle. It's the most prevalent teaching of Jesus. And so obviously it's important, very important. Do you understand it? Do you live it? Let's find out. So what does it mean? Whoever tries to keep their life. Keeping your life is a reference to the decision that, hey, it's my life and I want it for me. It's a self-centered orientation. It's a, it's a pursuit of building a great life for your own sake. So I want to be happy, so I'm going to try to get a lot of money and I think riches will contend my soul. I want to be important, and so I'm going to strive for 
prestige in this community. I want to be successful. I want to be beautiful. I want to be, I want to be. It's my life and I'm going to make it great for me. It's the American dream. I mean, this is the way people live, is the pursuit of making their life great for themselves. And yet, the passage says that if you try to keep your life for you, you're going to lose it. The irony here is that those who strive to keep their life in the end actually lose their life. Now, this may be a reference to an eternal perspective, meaning that if you fail to receive the reconciliation God offers through Christ, you're going to get to the end and you won't have life. You'll be in hell, death forever. And it could be that, but I think it's more than that. I believe that there's a this world perspective understanding of it as well. And that is simply this. Even in this life, this earthly life, those who pursue keeping their life and finding satisfaction in the keeping find that the life they've held on to doesn't fill their soul at all. It's like people who believe that if I could just get rich, I will just dance and be giddy for the rest of my life. And then you meet them and they're rich and they're miserable. Or people who say, if I only achieve a career that makes my peers look at me with respect, and then they get career success and it's empty. People strive to look beautiful and they accomplish it to a degree and yet it doesn't fill their soul like they thought it would. Folks, Jesus warns us. It's like a mirage. You're thirsty in the desert and you see that water and you rush to it and when you finally get it, it's a lie. It's just sand running through your fingers. There's nothing there that really satisfies. And so the warning is there. Be careful. Those who keep their life and think by the keeping, they'll find life. No, they're wrong. They're going to miss out on true life. But Jesus goes on and he says, but whoever loses their life. Now we can gain some clarity on that. What does it mean to lose your life? We can gain it by looking at the other gospels that use this teaching because some of them say, whoever loses their life for my sake, that is for the sake of Christ, And you're like, oh, I get that. That means that I take my life and I say, rather than saying it's my life and it's for me, we surrender it to Jesus and we say, Jesus, you died on the cross and gave your life to save my soul. Well, I respond by giving my life to you. I am all yours. Whatever you want to do with my life is up to you because I'm all yours. My days, my skills, my energies, My passion, my achieve, everything will be for you. I live for you. That's the high call. And you may say, well, that's kind of sad, you know. For someone to not have their life, for them to give it to Jesus, they've lost. No. Christ says, whoever loses their life for my sake will, some verses say, find true life or preserve it or get it. The irony is that you give your life away to Jesus, and in the giving, you get the life you've always longed for. I know, it's strange. It's counterintuitive. No one would ever think of this on their own. I think that's why Jesus said, i got to teach it six times, because you just wouldn't guess that the giving away of your life would result in you finding a satisfaction you never knew was out there. But that's what happens. People who have surrendered their whole life to Jesus Christ and said, it's no longer about me, I am all yours, they suddenly come alive in a way that they've never been alive before. They discover a passion and a joy and a satisfaction in their soul that they didn't even know existed. And they say, yes, Lord, I've now tasted the truth of this unbelievable statement. 
Folks, this is the Lot's wife drama. This, this principle we've just looked at has been called a discipleship principle. To be a disciple of Jesus, you must abandon your life to his cause. Lot's wife is a discipleship drama. That's what's going on here. Lot's wife, it's more than a rescue. You know, I think we could just look at it as the city's going to burn. Lot's wife is being escorted by the angels out of the city. No, it's more than that. The angels are calling her, the messengers of God are calling her to leave her old life behind. As Jesus called his disciples and they dropped their nets and left everything to follow him, so Lot's wife is being told, leave it all behind. I'll remind you, she was wealthy, probably had a beautiful home. She was prestigious in that community. Her husband had achieved political power. And God was saying, leave it all. And follow me into my future for you. And Lot's wife had kind of said yes to the call, or at least the angels were pulling her out of Sodom. But when she stopped and looked back, the turning of her head revealed the substance of her heart. And in that simple turn of the head, she's essentially saying no to this great invitation. The Lord is saying, Lot's wife, Leave it all for me. Follow me into my new future for you. And she says, no, no, I think I want my old life for me. It's a tragic story. And it's the truth of this. Jesus is saying, you try to keep your own life, you're going to lose it. And she quite literally lost her life and became a pillar of salt. And so Jesus says, remember her. Look at the pillar of salt. Be reminded of how tragic it is when people fail to follow the wisdom of this teaching. Don't be like Lot's wife. Because God's inviting you too, you know. I'll just make it clear if you don't realize that already. The one who died and gave his life for you is looking at you saying, come, follow me. Leave everything and be mine. How will you respond? Some people are like, oh, I don't know about that. I'll give you Sundays at church. I'll say a prayer every now and then. Uh, A token contribution to Jesus and his cause is what we're inclined towards, but that's not what he asks for. He asks for complete life abandoned to him. And in the giving, we are promised to find the life we were made for. You know, this really struck home for me this week when I I read a book. I was given a book. I was bamboozled is what it was. I was tricked. Uh, 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 friend in our church. She gave me this book this week and she said, Jeff, this is, you're going to love this. She said, it's history. It's a biography. I know you love biographies. She went on and said, it's actually about Norwegians. You're Norwegian. It's about Norwegian sailors on the high seas. And I come from a family of Norwegian sailors. And she goes, oh, you're going to love it. And she caught me. I was like, yeah, thank you. I'm going to read it. It's not about Norwegian sailors. There's one paragraph about Norwegian sailors. It's a missionary book. It's about Norwegians, a Norwegian family that had wealth and prestige and felt the call of God to become missionaries in China. And they left it all. They gave their whole lives to Jesus. They walked away from everything and moved to an area where they lived in abject poverty, where they were in constant danger. In fact, one of the family members died. They gave it all to serve Christ. And the thing that I find so amazing 
is the satisfaction, the joy, the sweet vitality that just emanates from their lives as they live this great story. This thing about give your life away and find it, it's here. I mean, these people live a life that makes me want in. I'm like, oh man, I want that. At one point, this old Norwegian woman, part of this missionary team, she said, oh, the privilege I have had to be a small little part of God's grand plan for the nation of China. And you can tell she is just glorying in the privilege of living this life. And I'm like, oh man, I I want in on that. Sometimes it seems like only missionaries can really live out this verse. You notice that? Only missionaries are the ones who say they abandon everything, all the American uh, privileges and conveniences, and they go live in poverty and danger and serve Jesus. And you're like, yeah, they're the only ones who really lose their life. And I find myself saying, is there a way to really lose your life for Jesus here? What if I'm called here? Can this still be my story? The answer is yes. In fact, I saw this lived out by two guys that I talked to this week. Uh, We had a small group leaders training here at our church, and uh, I was assigned to a table where I was so inspired by two ordinary guys in our church. Uh, Two guys who live for Jesus Christ. He is the love, the purpose, the consuming obsession of their lives. One of the guys, he's a paramedic. He's a great paramedic. He's got a sweet career going, but you talk to him and you realize it's first love in his life is Jesus Christ. And it's evidenced even in his job. His job is not for himself. His job is for Jesus. And I saw that when he told me that he's started a small group for the first time and thought he'd try inviting non-Christian co-workers into his small group Bible study. (laughs) And he's like, I don't know if this is going to work. But with just glowing enthusiasm, he says, Jeff, they're all coming. I invite them and they come. And this man, yeah, he's got a career. But his career is for Jesus. And this other guy, he's got a house, beautiful house. He's a banker. But his beautiful house is for Jesus. In fact, he and his wife view their living in this neighborhood as a calling to be a missionary to that neighborhood. So much so that they have started a neighborhood weekly breakfast. There are too many people coming for them to host it at their home. There are actually 30 people coming to this every week. And so they've picked a local restaurant where they fill this place up with neighbors who are tasting a bit of the joy and love of Jesus as it's emanated from their hosts. And I just saw in these two guys here, they're not missionaries. One's a paramedic, one's a banker, but you know what they really are? Devoted to Jesus Christ above all else. He is their obsession. And everything else is about him. Oh, what a week. I mean, this book, missionary book is messing with me. These guys are messing with me. And then Friday night, the Lord messed with me in a big way. I was, again, dropping my daughter off at Wheaton College, my alma mater, In fact, I dropped off Jorah at the same dorm that I went to 30 years ago as a freshman. Talk about getting uh, pulled back in time. I I was sitting in the back of this welcome meeting. All right, I'm in the back row. I'll admit it, I wasn't listening. Up in the front, wah, 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 wah. (laughs) 
And I kind of got this faraway look, like you guys have when I'm talking to you, you know? It's clear some of you are somewhere else. I was listening to God. God was, by his spirit, just, it was one of these almost out-of-body experiences where God was taking me back in time to what I was like at Wheaton College. It was like I went back 30 years and I could remember my love for him. It was at Wheaton that I fell in love with Jesus Christ. I had been a pseudo-Christian for a long time. It was there that he just won my heart. It was there that I, I heard the call of discipleship. I heard Jesus say, Griffin, I died for you. Give me your life in return. And with enthusiasm, I said, Jesus, I'm all yours. Take my life. And I could remember in those days that I was tasting of true life for the first time as a result of it. I mean, the irony of giving and getting is what my experience was. I mean, I was such a cowardly kid, and I had this fire of courage burning up and a sense of joy that permeated my spirit like nothing I had known before. This passion and love for people in the world uh, to an otherwise self-centered individual. I mean, I had given my life and received life as a result, just as Jesus promised. And the really sweet thing about it back then, and this is what I tasted so profoundly, is that back then, all I had was Jesus. I mean, I didn't have a wife or even a girlfriend at that time. Jen and I were broken up. I obviously had no kids, so I had no family of my own. I, I had no money. I mean, today I own a house, or at least the bank and I own a house. And back then, I didn't have two nickels. Uh, back then, I had no career. I had no title. I had no skill that was admired and respected by people. I had nothing but Jesus. And Jesus was enough. And in that experience in the back row on Friday night, it was like the Lord said, Jeff, let's compare what it was like back then and what your heart is like today. And the comparison was not complimentary. There are many ways in which my love for the Lord is deeper today, but it was simpler then in a beautiful way. It was just all him. And I said, Lord, it's so hard today. My life is filled with all these other factors. And I'm like, is there any way? I wanted to go back to the simplicity of just, oh, Jesus, you're all I've got. I've given everything to you. And that's enough for me. And I felt the Lord lead me to what I had learned that week. Jeff, it's about devoting what you have to him. That's the key. Yes, you've got a lot now. But it's all for him. Your family is not your family. It's his family. Your house is not your house. It's his house. Your church is not your church. It's his church. Your calling, your position, your gift. It's not yours. It's his. It's all about him. And I, just with deep conviction, went through this experience of complete and utter surrender of everything again. To the Lord. And folks, the fullness of life that resurged in my veins was just beautiful. I hope you know what I'm talking about. I hope, what you, hope you want what we're looking at here. And I hope you'll lean into it. I want to give a song that provides an opportunity to lean into it. I picked this song. I love this song. Maybe you do too. It's really perfect because it's entitled, Christ is Enough. You know, back 
in those Wheaton days, that's what it was. You know, all I've got is Jesus, and that's enough. I had given my whole life to him, and all I had was his love for me, and I was finding great joy in that. The song cries that out. I also love this song because it incorporates the chorus of an old, old song. The old song was, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. And it uses that chorus in a fresh way. And maybe that chorus comes from the story of Lot's wife. You know, she's the one who was called by God through those angels, and yet she turned back. And this song says, not me. (laughs) No way, I ain't going to be like Lot's wife. I got one life, and I'm giving it to Jesus. No compromise. No turning back. So let's pray, and then let's sing that song, shall we? God, shine a light into our hearts and help us understand ourselves, kind of like you did me on Friday night. And God, some of us would like to think that we're fully in with you, but the truth is there are many things that have captured our affection and our obsession more than you. Oh, dear God, don't let us miss out on the wisdom of Jesus' teaching. Help us know to our very core that a life of complete abandonment to our God and King is the only way to go. Please help us recognize the the lie of the promise that if you build a life about yourself, you'll find true joy. Don't let us buy that lie. Give us the guts and the passion to surrender all to you. And God, we pray the result would be, as you promised, tasting of the life only you can give. Christ, you are enough. And Jesus, many of us, I want to tell you again, we have decided to follow you both now and for all eternity, no turning back. No turning back. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.